This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One of the things that we have been watching during the COVID crisis is that some people bear more of the burden than others. And one of those groups makes up 51% of the country, and that would be women. Why? Let's talk about that. Stephanie Kuntz is the Director of Research and Public Education for the Council on Contemporary Families. You've seen her in just about every TV news show there is, and she's working on her sixth book right now. Stephanie, hi. How are you? Oh, fine. Thank you, Gil. (laughs) Women have been especially hard hit here with many schools closed. They've ended up at home and having to leave their jobs. How disproportionate does this seem? Uh, Well, I think working women have been literally hit coming and going by this pandemic. Uh, Women are a majority of the lowest paid frontline essential workers who need to stay on the job uh, and have the least protection. But they've also been a lot harder hit by uh, job uh, by pandemic related job losses. Uh, They make up a disproportionate share of the service industries that have lost the most job. Uh, But I think the thing that really stands out is that um, is what's been happening with the school closures. This is when married women lost almost a million jobs just last month uh, in September even though the the jobless rate for women um, uh, revived, went slightly below men's, almost all of women's jobs since June have been from single women. Uh, There were uh, four and a half million fewer women uh, employed in October than a year ago, and mothers have been the ones hit the hardest. There's been so much publicity about people able to work from home, but if you work in a restaurant, a grocery store, department stores, even airport, police, fire, I mean, it can go on and on. There's just a lot of jobs that you can't do from home, and women are hugely represented in those jobs. That's right. The United States has one of the biggest gaps between high-wage workers and low-wage workers, and women tend to be uh, disproportionately represented in those low-wage jobs. Uh, so they are the ones that, uh, if they don't stay at work, uh, if they if they if they can't telecommute, if they have pay, uh, kids and the kids are uh, the childcare centers have been closed, these are the ones who have to quit. And a third of the working women twenty 
25 to 44 years old, they now say, are, are unemployed uh, because of childcare demands. Only 12% of men say that's why they're unemployed. Mothers of young children have reduced their work hours by four to five times more than, than men have. So there's just this, been this incredible... Actually, I think that this has been the sharpest setback for women workers since wage work for women first became the norm. You know, we've been through a form of this before. We didn't have as many women in the workforce before it, but during World War II, when women were urgently needed in factories and offices to replace men who were in the military, the government did establish a big federally subsidized network of nurseries and child care centers in nearly every state. Of course, it just evaporated because of the mores of the day once the guys came back to work. That said, we know how to do this. We've done this in terms of being able to support women who have childcare needs and need to hold on to their jobs. We do know how to do this, and other countries know how to do this. We are one of the few countries in the world that does not have a federally funded child care center, that does not have uh, the idea. You know, we used to talk about economic infrastructure and how important it is to, you know, build roads and to, to um, you know, make, get by, build bridges. But child care is by now as important a part of our economic infrastructure as our roads and bridges and public transportation. Uh, most kids live live in families where every adult is in the labor force. Uh, Two-thirds of married parents with children are both in the labor force. And of course, the majority of our single parents are in the labor force. For all of them, there are huge financial repercussions to forcing these people to stay out of the job market. It, it, it hurts the family economy. It hurts the uh, gross national part product. And it also hurts, of course, the kids who just cannot really uh, thrive in situations where they are being uh, put alone and parents are asked to do everything that used to be a system of neighbors and child care workers and schools having to do. Yeah. Added to this, there's been a change in American society since, you know, the Leave it to Beaver days of the 50s. We move around a lot more for jobs than used to be the case. And we have fewer jobs where, you know, you went into the steel plant at 18 and you came out at 65. There's rarely grandparents around. We're not the Waltons anymore. That's right. Um, we we are apart from many grandparents. Many grandparents are still working themselves. And um, this idea that, that somehow you can do this informally and just rely on the family is totally out of touch with the reality of today's economy. And I think that's one of the things that's so sad. If, if for example, when you look at two working parents, uh, often it's the woman who, who quits because, for example, uh, men generally on average tend to earn more than, than women. But this is not like it was in the 1930s or the 40s when men could earn a family wage on their own. If we look at the middle class, households who are in the middle 60% of the income distribution, you know, below the top 20%, but above the bottom 20%, we look at the gains those households have made uh, since 1979, between 1979 and 2018, women's earnings accounted for 91% of the total income gains of their families. So you're not just pushing women out of the workforce, you are hurting the future of these families as a whole. Yeah, and with that leads us to another situation with this reduced income because there are several important areas where costs have gone up way past the rate of inflation. And I'm thinking of housing, I'm thinking of healthcare, and I'm thinking of education. Even on just housing alone, we're seeing people who, if they lose a source of income for quite some time, are facing 
eviction, uh, repossession of their cars and things like that. Oh, yes. Um, the Census Bureau has been tracking the number of families that have are say that they can probably not make you know, next month's house payment or or rent. The number of families that dip into retirement uh, or college funds in order just to put food on the table. Uh, this is a real tremendous uh, crisis, especially, you know, it was helped a little bit with the CARES Act. But since May, with uh, nothing coming in, no, nothing from our Congress uh, coming in to help and, and, and substitute for that, uh, eight to nine million more people have fallen into poverty. And this isn't just a short term kind of thing, especially for uh, those people who have lost jobs. Are they going to get those jobs back? Are they going to be able to come back and uh, proceed on the same track toward uh, promotions and wages that they were able to get before? This is a major long term crisis that will actually last much longer than this pandemic uh, lasts. So as a man, I've got a question to ask you as a man, Stephanie. Are we, step- are we stepping up? I mean, there are some men who are finding themselves in role reversal. If your wife is a nurse and she's working 16 hours a day right now, while a white collar guy may have been furloughed, so he would be the homemaker, like it or not. Are we, speaking of men, adjusting to this? Well, uh, I think that it. I think that you are. <laughs> Maybe not as fast as you should be, <laughs> but you know, over the last uh, 20, 30 years, men have really increased their desire to do uh, uh, childcare uh, and their willingness to do housework and childcare. And when this pandemic first started, before the schools uh, started getting closed. Um, we found that men, uh, studied by the Council on Contemporary Families researchers, found that actually the percent of parents reporting that they had increased their share uh, and shared more equally the routine housework and childcare increased very significantly in the early months of the pandemic. Um, but for in families where the schools closed, moms tended to take the lion's share of this new task. I think for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that although men have been, I think, changing and really learning and trying to step up to the plate. We've had a 200 years of socializing that say that if there's a new job that comes along, women are the experts in it. And women feel compelled themselves to step in and take over and men tend to step back. Uh, so we saw that in the areas where men had already been moving toward doing more housework, childcare, shopping, uh, dishes, they continued to do more. But when this uh, homeschooling came in on top of it, they stepped back and the women stepped forward. <laughs> it's not clear, um, but the it's not clear who did more. I think it varied from household to household. But women feel that responsibility. Men feel that incapacity. And this has been uh, pretty devastating. Uh, one of the other things we find that even when people are tele telecommuting, uh, that women tend to be interrupted by children much more when they're trying to work uh, than men do. That There's a tendency for men to feel free to go in and shut the door to the bedroom and do the work there, and women to stay in the kitchen where they, the children feel more free to interrupt them, and they evidently feel less free to say, no, I'm working now, you have to go find your dad. Stephanie Kuntz is Director of Research and Public Education for the Council on Contemporary Families. Stephanie, as always, thank you. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Gil. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. A new administration is a couple of months away from having to tackle COVID. Where are we now? Where do we need to be? And what might be just ahead? 
Dr. Celine Gounder is a practicing infectious disease specialist and internist, epidemiologist, as well as being a journalist and filmmaker, also the host and producer of In Sickness and in Health, a podcast on health and social justice. But more to the point for our conversation, she's also a member of the Biden Transition 13-member team of scientists and doctors who will advise the president-elect and eventually president on control of the coronavirus. Good to have you with us. How are you? I'm good. Good to be here. You've seen up close in your travels other infectious diseases, Ebola, the Zika virus. How does this compare? Gosh. Um, yeah. So Ebola, Zika virus, um, very different in many respects. Um, obviously not nearly on the same scale. Those were um, much more limited in scope and duration uh, relative to what we're going to see with coronavirus. Americans were relatively insulated um, from from the impacts. Um, Zika did affect some people uh, who were travelers, uh, perhaps in Florida a little bit. But by and large, Americans were pretty isolated from the impacts of both of those epidemics. And I think this is the first time in a long time Americans are are really contending with um, the broader, not just health, but social and economic impacts that infectious diseases can have. We're coming into the winter. We're in the midst of a surge. Vaccine distribution, which we'll get into in a bit, is something we can't count on for most Americans till the spring, maybe the summer. Right now, we have a problem with an administration that refuses to talk to or even recognize the incoming administration that should be coordinating the distribution of hard-to-deliver but apparently effective vaccines that need to be frozen at almost 100 degrees below zero. How much of a problem is this? Well, this is a massive problem. Um, it, this is uh, like jumping uh, from a train that's going at high speed from one train onto another. I mean, it's a, it's an Indiana Jones kind of move that we're being asked to, to make, uh, trying to pick up uh, on January 20th without an appropriate transition. Uh, it, and as we've experienced in the past, these periods of transition are really uh, fragile times um, when uh, national security threats of any kind um, can, can, really, um, can really be an issue. So uh, that sort of blind spot that this creates um, puts everybody in this country at risk. Well, one of the problems America is facing is that this disease has been politicized. There are people who are dying in places like South Dakota telling friends and family that they're dying of the flu, even lung cancer, so they don't have to say that they're dying of an illness they called a hoax for so long. Then on the other side, you have people who are anti-vaccine because of what turned out to be a false claim connecting vaccines to autism, polls showing half the nation says they don't want a vaccine. How do we move forward from you know where we are, where both the virus itself has been politicized and we have this differing view, sometimes because of politics on both sides, of using a vaccine at all? Well, and you're right. There's so many different reasons people are skeptical and hesitant to get vaccinated. You have people who don't want the government telling them what to do. You have people who are uh, suspicious of pharmaceutical companies. I mean, there, there's a whole host of reasons. Uh, and, and I think you have to start by one, mapping all of those different reasons, because your strategies are going to be different depending on why somebody feels the way they do. Uh, very often, these are emotional um, uh, opinions. Uh, and so you also have to get at it, not just through the science, but really understanding what are, are those emotions about? What are those loyalties about? And then I, you know, listening to people um, and identifying 
who are the trusted messengers that can address those concerns? And so that's actually, a, it's almost like a big anthropological study, um, you know, to figure out what are going to be the right messages and, and right people to message depending on the person and their reasoning. We have, uh, among many problems we have right now, is great pressure on healthcare workers. Um, North Dakota has one of the worst outbreaks of COVID. Governor Burgum is now asking asymptomatic nurses and doctors who have the disease to go to work anyhow, though only to treat other COVID patients. Health workers are protesting because they feel the order endangers themselves and others at hospitals. On the other hand, they're facing a huge shortage of healthcare workers. In fact, more than 35% of hospitals in Arkansas, Missouri, North Dakota, New Mexico, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Virginia, and Wisconsin are anticipating staffing shortages this coming week. So what's the right thing to do here? Yeah, I mean, this is what we were talking about over the summer with this whole concept of flattening the curve. The idea being to slow the spread so that you don't have these massive surges in cases where the healthcare system can no longer cope. Um, there is only so much we can do. Um, that You have only so many nurses and doctors and other healthcare providers in this country. We can't manufacture those uh, just in time. Um, and even other critical supplies like personal protective equipment and ventilators and the like remain in shortage. They, that remains an, an, an issue. Um, what we have also seen is that when hospitals get overrun with patients and we can no longer care for everybody the way we normally would, that is when you see case fatality rates spike. That's when you see people dying at much higher rates from this. And unfortunately, um, I do think that is what we will see um, in the coming weeks ahead. Is there any way the federal government can come up with a plan to, because planning for this is one of your responsibilities, to, mo to move nurses and doctors voluntarily from less hard hit areas to places where everybody is overworked or maybe... I don't know, create mobile ICUs, something like military mass units that can, you know, just jump and go to where the crisis is? Well, the challenge now, you know, unlike the spring where in New York City, we brought nurses and doctors from all over the country to assist. When you have a surge going on across the country, no region actually has that much slack left in the system to send folks elsewhere. Um, so we simply don't have a good solution to the staffing issue, the one place where we might have a little slack is, you know, you mentioned the military, um, perhaps tapping into military health facilities and into um, their logistics and supply capacity. But that's really the only place where we have slack in the system. You were on ill health tour of the United States, caring for patients in disease hotspots around the country, everywhere from New York City to Appalachia to Indian reservations. What did you see? Yeah, you know, it, this was after the 2016 election, and I was really curious. I felt like a lot of us had blind spots, especially those of us living on the coasts, and it wasn't just about uh, the media and journalists having blind spots. I felt like me as a doctor had not practiced in the center of the country and in some of these other communities, and so really felt like that was a part of better understanding um, health care and public health in this country. So, yeah, I did. I, I went out to places like Appalachia, uh, what I saw there where, you know, this is a part of the country that's been hit very hard by the opioid overdose crisis. I was shocked to see 
that there were very few younger people with opioid issues in the hospital. And the reason is that they were not accessing healthcare. They were overdosing on opioids at home in the field, and they were not making it into the hospital. They were being found by EMTs and police and the like, and never making it in for care. So that was really striking to me because it means that there's a big gap there that needs to be met. In terms of Indian reservations and Unfortunately, my colleagues who are working in, uh, at some of these facilities now are really struggling. Um, the Indian Health Service has been massively underfunded since the beginning of its inception, um, and they simply do not have the numbers of hospital beds, the equipment they need. I mean, they're even more they're, they're in even more dire straits than the rest of the country, and so it's not any coincidence that some of the hardest hit communities have been, for example, the Navajo. Um, it, it's a combination of the healthcare system, what's available to them. Uh, it's rural. There's even within the state more generally, there's not a lot of um, health resources, ICU beds and the like. And these are also um, people living on reservations that you, you may not have running water. You may not have electricity. You have multiple generations of families living in very difficult circumstances. And so the coronavirus just really rips through those communities um, and, and kills many. Yeah, I'm, in fact, talking to you from New Mexico today. And as you know, there's a minimal number of ICU beds anywhere near reservations in New Mexico or Arizona. The Dakotas, which are having a big surge, have a similar problem. And, of course, that goes for many rural parts of the United States where it's true for everybody. And, you know, not just for COVID, but long-term what do we do about this? Well, and we've seen a lot of rural hospitals, community hospitals closing over the last decade or so. Um, and this has to do with how healthcare is financed. Um, and I, you know, I think we have had this um, just in time, just enough mentality where we need to think a little bit more in terms of just in case, just in case a crisis like this hits. You know, I, I think even even more broadly, um, these are communities that have been underserved in terms of health systems for a long time. I think there are creative ways we can try to to get services out there. I think telemedicine is promising in this in this situation where you can offer um, remote monitoring, remote um, specialty advice, but you still do need bodies on the ground. Um, and, and so I think scaling up. Um, your workforce capacity, both in terms of health care and public health, remains a key piece here. We'll have more in our next segment with Dr. Celine Gounder as we try to figure out what the Biden transition team is planning to do about COVID. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery Starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. 
now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking with Dr. Celine Gounder of the Biden transition team on the COVID virus about what their plans are to deal with it. So, Celine, my friend, and I'm sure being in New York, you know her, Lori Garrett, has been preaching. We've been ill-prepared for this for 30 years. This isn't going to be a matter of just fighting the SARS-CoV-2 virus, but putting together a system we have not had to fight whatever comes over the horizon next. No, and that's absolutely right. I think after Ebola, the Obama administration had taken steps towards that kind of pandemic preparedness. But under the current administration, all of that was then dismantled. And I, I think this current crisis demonstrates the necessity of not just resurrecting those structures, but building upon those. I think that was a good starting point. Uh, but we've known for a long time that uh, infectious disease threats were very real. They have been, um, we've seen epidemics arise at increasing frequency over time over the last decade or two. Uh, this is not going to be the last one. Um, and, and you know, people ask, well, why is this happening more? You know, it's a combination of uh, overpopulation in certain areas, um, the impact on the environment and climate, um, which the reason that leads to infectious disease outbreaks is you have humans in closer contact with um, animal reservoirs of, of new infections. And so over time, you have introductions of, of new infections into the human population. Um, so we are going to see this happening with increasing frequency. Uh, and we really need to take this as seriously as learned conflict or terrorist threats. Um, if anything, this is uh, far more concrete and predictable. You know, we've seen states such as New York, where you are, New Jersey next door, the city of Los Angeles, even Sweden, which was banking on herd immunity, putting 10 p.m. curfews into effects at restaurants and bars, among other places. Is the coronavirus like a, a vampire or a werewolf? It only comes out after dark, or is this as odd as it sounds? Yeah, I don't really understand the, the science behind that. To me, that's more about politicians uh, trying to look like they're doing something when they're not. Um, I, I think the you know the coronavirus really doesn't care if you're having lunch at noon or you're having a beer at 1030. If you've taken off your mask and you're indoors and you're around other people, there is a risk of transmission. And so those curfews are really not evidence-based. They're sort of nonsensical. So as long as I brought up Sweden, let's talk about that issue about herd immunity. It's notable that Sweden, which tried this just this week, decided to clamp down because the virus is now out of control there. But there are many people, including members of the current administration, who believe that this is the way to go because everybody will get immunity quicker and uh, will be able to open up the economy quicker. Not much is talked about the possible toll in deaths and also what that might do to the economy. I, what do you think of the theory? Well, there's a major assumption there, which is that once you're infected, that you are immune, that you have lifelong immunity. And we simply don't know if that's the case. Uh, I think it's also important to note that we have never in all of human um, history achieved herd immunity with any infection. Um, and I think smallpox is a really great example of this. Smallpox infected humans over millennia. It was another respiratory virus um, highly deadly, and it took vaccination to get to herd immunity. You need a vaccine to get to herd immunity. And some of this is because you need um, to elicit an immune response that's actually better than the natural immune response, that's um, more robust, longer lasting. But secondly, you really need to sync up when people become immune. Um, and, and the only way to do that is really to do a, a mass vaccination where you're getting everybody immune sort of in synchrony. And then finally, you're always going to have people entering a population who are not immune through births, through migration. And unless you're vaccinating them, 
uh, as well, you're not going to get to herd immunity. So that's really a concept that's only relevant in the context of vaccination. Okay, so the final question is the most practical one for the moment. Even when we get a vaccine, it won't be generally distributed until spring, maybe summer. We have to get through this holiday season. We have to decide on traveling or not for Thanksgiving, Christmas, everything coming up. What do we do? What should we do? Well, you know, unfortunately, um, we are in the middle of a massive surge in cases. Um, based on, you know, the, the data we have, a lot of that is still brewing in the community, and we're going to be seeing um, a big surge in hospitalizations in the coming couple weeks. Um, but then to have Thanksgiving and other holidays uh, essentially be super spreader events on top of what is already widespread community transmission uh, would serve to amplify things, essentially pouring gasoline on a fire. Um, at the same time, you know, I understand people have had a really hard year. This has been one of the hardest years in our nation's history, really. Um, and so we're hungry to be around other people, to celebrate, to commiserate. Um, and I think we, we just need to step back and say, well, how can we do this creatively? Um, I think for some families, the solution will be a virtual holiday. Uh, that's what my family will be doing. We will be um, celebrating within our household bubbles, but then reaching out um, to my sister and my mom in, in Houston, Texas, to my uh, other sister's family in San Francisco, and to um, my brother-in-law's family in Seattle. We will be celebrating virtually. Dr. Celine Gounder is a practicing infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist. She is also a member of the Biden transition team of scientists and doctors advising on control of the coronavirus. Dr. Gounder, best of luck to you, which is also a way of saying best of luck to all of us. And thank you for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The COVID crisis has affected all of the United States. It's affected jobs. It's affected food. And in some parts, it's even affecting culture. It's heartbreaking everywhere that's happening, including St. Helena, South Carolina, an island where an age-old culture is fighting for its life. Sarah Reynolds-Green is owner of Marshview Community Organic Farm, a longtime activist in trying to save a culture that is an integral part of American history. In fact, the first place where slaves were emancipated during the Civil War. Sarah, good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Renee Smith is a member of the Gullah community and an artist. Renee, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me today. We could spend a whole segment just on this, but but briefly, for people who are unfamiliar, can give us some background on the Gullah people, who they are? Well, the Gullah people are people that were born in isolation off of the southeast coast of um, South Carolina, a small island, of course, known as St. Helena. We uh, are part of the African diaspora that came in, um, Igbo people, some Nigerian mix, but we came from the west coast of Africa. But my belief also is that we were here as a part of the indigenous people, once called the Gwail, or the Indians that inhabited these lands. The Gwali were later known as the Gullah people, and that's who we are. We lived in isolation, no bridges, no bridges of any sort. So the waterways was our travel, our culture, 
actually looks a lot like and has many similarities to the um, Indian American culture. So, Rob, this is a unique situation for the Gullah culture on St. Helena because it's not just a matter of, well, if things don't go well here, we can just pick up and go elsewhere because what you have is this very unique historical culture that is a very special part of American history with its own language, its own cuisine, its own history. And if people have to, you know, get up and go somewhere else, all all of that could easily disappear. And there's been, you know, quite the battle over just the last few years, including an act of Congress in 2005 to try and preserve this culture. That's correct. Um, the Gullah Geechee Corridor, we are very thankful that that our commission did designate those areas um, from North Carolina all the way to Florida um, as the Gullah Geechee Corridor to preserve those areas that you have a large concentration of Gullah Geechee people that are still practicing those traditions and the culture that were brought over by their enslaved ancestors. Um, so we are trying to keep that intact and in keeping that intact, we have to pass it on to the next generation. So basically our goal is to pass it on to the youth and to allow them to learn about their culture, to embrace their culture and see, find out who they really are. You know, if you don't, the old people used to say, if you don't know who you are, you don't know where you're going. Knowing their ancestry, knowing their origin and knowing what great people they came from is so important to build self-esteem, self-confidence and to build a, a really a thirst for knowledge and understanding of their their identity. What is interesting about that land handed down over a century within families as heirs, the transfers were often not recorded and tax statements never got to people. And that's endangering, besides COVID, which is of course endangering income, that's endangering people as the state has moved in and said, hey, uh, taxes are owed and we want we want the land. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's very unfortunate because all of the land was passed down, as you said, in, in heirs, which is from one family member to another. And all of the people owned all of the island, all of the Gullah people um, inhabited all of the land. We were actually one with the land because we depended, again, heavily for all of our food. The waterways provided food and, you know, the commerce was within. So we had the ability to share with each other. Maybe um, fishermen would share with the farmers and, you know, so forth. And so there was never any need for any kind of outside intervention until taxes came. And when there was this decision made that people would have to pay taxes, then there was need for money, which was never a big part of our you know, community was never a part of our uh, previous generations. And because of the need to pay these taxes, a lot of our men left the island looking for work to be able to secure this funding. And through the years, this migration has continued because our young people now uh, are unable to find work on the island, which used to be self-sufficient, 
but there are um, no means of continuing, you know, work and finding that income to continue to pay the taxes. So what is very sad for me to have, you know, grown up here and born in the house, actually, where I grew up on this island, and to find now that 60% of our island is gone. 65% no longer belongs to us. And with COVID, because of the type of work that most of the islanders do, which is service industry, which is tourism, um, and while supporting those types of jobs, which are not really living wages, the tax burden becomes greater. So people who were once very self-sufficient, um, while we were isolated, we were still self-sufficient. And now we have become, in some ways, very dependent. How is the community doing? How have things gone for this nearly a year that we've been dealing with this? Well, the community is surviving. They're not thriving, but they're barely surviving. Um, and due to the support of many people in the community and outside of the community. Um, we've been able to galvanize food and um, definitely food to help. And the agencies, the other agencies in our community are helping and paying assistance for rent and um, light and gas, water, those basic needs. What's ironic about this, Renee, is it's really only been over the last decade or so that many Americans through various television programs and articles have really discovered this, and it's become an attraction for the, say, you know, swankier resorts down on Hilton Head Island, the thing to visit St. Helena and see and hear the Gullah culture has become a source of tourist dollars, although very often for places off the island itself. But still, it's only recently that the Gullah culture has been so well-known and celebrated, and yet now it faces really a problem of survival. Yes, I believe we are in survival mode. And again, COVID has taken its toll on us, I think, um, you know, inordinately. We, we are in crisis mode, really. Gullah artist Sandra Renee Smith from St. Helena Island, South Carolina. In a moment, we'll have more about how this COVID crisis could destroy a community that has survived just about everything else that humans and nature could throw at it. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. And we continue with a look at how America could change forever by the loss of a community with its own language, food, music, and more. The Gullah culture, centered on St. Helena Island off South Carolina, is endangered both by modern society and COVID. We're seeing lines at food pantries around the nation. How is it on St. Helena? It's the same. It is the same as the food pantries. Uh, they are depleted every week. Each week they're going to uh, restock. And even the, the suppliers, they are getting shortage in their the food pantry itself, where they're getting the food from the distribution site, is having a shortage as well. So it's a lot going on. And, you know, we just do our little small part to support what we can do. Um, we provide free hot meals to the community. Um, we were doing it once a week, but we're doing it once every other week because of the lack of funding. I was born in my home and we never knew hunger, even though we didn't have what I guess other people would think of as, you know, the luxuries, but we were always happy and our community knew how to share with each other. And so no one was ever left out or left behind. And we are always open and welcome to sharing, especially our food. Renee, since we're talking about food, let's finish this by talking about the immediate situation on St. Helena Island and for the Gullah people. What is the food situation like? Are there people going hungry? The food situation is dire. I am the administrator of our church's food bank. We are only one of two on the entire island. You know, you talk about lines that are wrapping around to receive food. Our church is very small, the Life Deliverance Temple. We have about 30 active members in that church. And St. Helena has a population of 8,000. And so something that is very disturbing to me is that we never saw people on the side of the road panhandling. We're seeing very strange things. And because of the, the COVID, the dying um, seems disproportionate to us. And so we are losing many of our elders. And with them goes the history. With them goes the backbone of the family that kept it together that kept the land intact. And many of these people are being, you know, the children, uh, it's just very different. Um, so our food bank is doing what it can. We started um, in the beginning, four years ago when we started, we were serving maybe 20 to 30 uh, people per month. We're up to 1,600 per month, and that's increasing daily. We have some problems. There's a lot of, of things going on with our culture. I do believe that we are strong and resilient people, but help would not be refused at this point. I hope that help comes and that our talking about it uh, helps in some way for that. Renee, thank you so much for being with us. You've been listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network, produced by District Productive and Paul Whitty Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. 
The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 